Okay, so we're going to talk tonight about culture's assault on Christianity. Okay, this series will be looking at this topic and the church's proper response to this assault. The church does need to have a response to this, but there's a right way to do it, there's a wrong way to do it. And scripture is actually really clear on all these things. We're going to walk through this toward the end of our series. We'll have application. I don't ever want to feed you notes with no application, so we'll lace application throughout all four weeks, but most of the application will be obviously at the end when we talk about the church's response. So later in the series, we'll look at the culture's tactics, the culture's content, and the church's response, but tonight we'll start with where we came from and how we got here where we came from and how we got here. So this is tonight, week one. The primary book that will be used for this series is the Bible. That's got the answers, right? Why is that? Well, because the Bible speaks to the issues that makes great cultures and also the issues that can ruin a culture or a society. We do not have to go outside of the Bible to find the answers for the human sin that does damage to the culture. For example, the Black Lives Matter movement. We don't need to go to that movement to find the answers. Why not? Do Black Lives Matter? Absolutely Black Lives Matter. This already says that. But if you join the movement outside of the church, the the chosen movement or vehicle or whatever word, conference, whatever word you want to fill out there that God chose for us to follow is the local church led by God's word not an outside movement. Look, if somebody wants to have a revival or something like that or a parachurch ministry, that's fine. But just understand that's not the main vehicle God chose to grow us and to make us impact the culture the way we need to. So we don't join that movement. Why? Do black lives matter? You bet they do, 100%. End of, end of sentence. I don't even need to add all lives matter, although that's true, they all do. They do. But this movement, as, and we're going to see this as we walk through probably the next couple of weeks, this movement brings Marxism and other elements that are unbiblical. Marxism requires the removal of God. Um, LGBTQ plus agenda brings all these other things into that movement, right? And so that's the point where we say, wait a second, <laughs> we can't lock hands with you there. Uh, we could before maybe, but not there. If there's any violence that's promoted, we hey. We're not going to do that. We're not going to riot and destroy private property. We're not going to do those things. So a movement can agree with one of our principles while doing other things that are against our principles. That's why we stick with what the Bible says. For example, LGBTQ support of Palestine right now. Palestine is the West Bank in Gaza. So they attacked Israel in case you'd have to be living under a rock to not have heard this. But they attacked Israel, right? And so West Bank in Gaza... There's a couple different groups involved, and we have our theories as to who's supporting this. Is Iran ultimately behind it? Is, you know, there's, there's obviously different ideas there, uh, but that's it. What you see sometimes, which is very ironic, is that the LGBTQ uh, movement and some people within the movement are raising pro-Palestine flags because they see a commonality, and there is only one. They see a commonality between them and the pro-Palestine group in that they both Marxism requires that you do this, by the way, to take over a culture. You have to separate people into groups. One of the groups has to be the oppressor, and one of the groups has to be the oppressed. So the one commonality that LGBTQ has with this deal is that they both identify themselves as the oppressed. And so in that vein, you see LGBTQ people raising, 
uh, waving the pro-Palestine flag. The, it, the problem is if they went over there with their LGBTQ flag, they would be tortured, arrested, and probably killed, uh, which happens all the time, not just in the more extreme groups like Hamas, but anywhere where there's Sharia law. They, don't, they tolerate none of that. So it's very ironic. So we're not just wanting to win an argument when we look at culture's assault on Christianity. We're wanting to win a soul. We're not wanting to win an argument. So everything we cover in these next four weeks, I want you to understand, we're not winning an argument. That's not our main goal. We're winning a soul. So you have the person in mind. You want to know what they've been through, why they said that, why they think that way. You want to know personal to them. So we go to the Bible. We don't go to a social movement outside the Bible. God's chosen social movement is the local church. Okay? So our primary book for this series is the Bible, but there are also a few other books that will help us navigate this topic. Okay? And these books will return us to the Bible, by the way, even each of these books. Now, let me just throw this caveat out there, because one time I recommended the book, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the author, Dr. Tim Jennings wrote a book called The God-Shaped Heart, The God-Shaped Brain. Great couple of books. But there's some things in there that I don't quite agree with, that he kind of goes too far with some of these ideas. It's never good for your brain to be afraid, and, and some of these types of things. And so somebody commented and said, well, wait a second, what? no, I, yes, any book I realize, so let me just make this blanket statement, any book I recommend other than the Bible is not perfect. There are going to be flaws, there are going to be things in there that you might say, I'm not sure that lines up with scripture. Agreed, granted. But the other th- books that will help us navigate our topic for our series is, number one, there's a book by Erwin Lutzer called We Will Not Be Silenced. We Will Not Be Silenced, Erwin Lutzer. You can come up afterward and look at these if you want to. And these are available anywhere you buy books. The second book we're going to be, that'll help us navigate this topic, and this will be more in the application section and culture's tactics section, is by a guy named Vody Bauckham. It's called Fault Lines, the Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism. Seminary guys like to make up fancy words to justify their degrees. It just means evangelicals. Evangelicalism's looming catastrophe. Great book. We're going we're gonna to look a little bit into that, and I'll quote from that a little bit. The third book that will help us navigate a little bit of this, Eric Metaxas. I don't know if you've heard of him. And this is the book called Letter to the American Church. This is basically a battle cry call to wake up like Bonhoeffer needed to with Nazi Germany, uh, where most of the Protestants, all the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic, but most of the Protestants as well were in bed in agreement with the Nazi, and they did, or if they weren't in agreement, they didn't say anything. Uh, Bonhoeffer, Niemöller, a couple of other guys were the only ones that spoke out and said, hey, something's wrong here. Something smells. Uh, most of the pastors didn't say a thing. So that's the third book, Eric Metaxas. Got a great podcast if you ever want to check that out. If our current culture, compared to how it used to view the Bible and its principles, has become darker over time, then how did our culture get so dark? And did it start out that way? So I'm going to, it's going to be drinking out of a fire hydrant tonight. Okay, I'm going to feed you a lot of information. If you don't have coffee, you might want to go get some. I was joking with Vicki earlier. She was going to get a cup. I said, you might want to get two. But uh, here we go. Good thing we're not Mormons because they cannot drink coffee. They cannot have caffeine. So we're going to look at, so that's the introduction. If you didn't get a copy of your notes, there should be some left on the right side back there in pens. If you didn't get a copy of your notes, uh, that's the introduction. Uh, Maybe you can write those book titles or whatever you want to in there. Now let's jump to the next section. 
This is the longest one. This is the spiritual heritage of our country, okay? The spiritual heritage of our country. Our nation's spiritual heritage is both rich and consistent in its dependence on and basis in Christianity and biblical morals. You know, you've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, this country was, it was formed by deists. It was formed by atheists. It was formed by people that just had these secular ideas. The closest they got to God of the Bible was the beginning of Psalm 19 kind of an idea, general revelation, what we call natural law, just laws you can observe. For example, the animal's right to defend itself. Uh, That's one of the places that we look to say, okay, we we should have the right of self-defense. God put that in nature. Uh, So a lot of people think that's all the founders went to to establish this nation. Okay, so where we came from, if we're going to talk about where we're going in culture, we need to look at where we came from. And a lot of people say, well, you know, all they looked at was natural law. That's as close as they got to the Bible. That is complete nonsense. And I'm going to show you that tonight, okay? Two years before meeting in Independence Hall to draft the Declaration of Independence from Great Britain, the movement started at Carpenter's Hall, just down the street, same city, Philadelphia. The first session of Congress here, this is great. Y'all should see the expression on his face. The first... I'm going to hear about Congress for the next 45 minutes. The first session of Congress here was open with two hours. First session of Congress, U.S., two hours of prayer and Bible study led by the Reverend of Christ Church, who they invited in to talk, by the way. John Adams records, how does that deal with your idea of separation of church and state? We'll talk about what that actually means later. John Adams records, and he wrote about it, how they studied four chapters of the Bible from the Psalms and how Psalm chapter 35 particularly spoke to them, changing their attitude on what they thought was possible to accomplish in forming a nation that they believed lined up with natural law, so there was that, but also biblical principles of government. Our founders were clear that if you tear down the principles and morals of this foundation, you'll eventually tear down the government itself. Was this system of government perfect? No, absolutely not. It was good, but it was not perfect. For example, we had slavery. The reason we kept slavery on the books, some of the founding colonies did not want slavery and were actually abolitionists, but a couple of them weren't. You know, Georgia comes to mind. A couple of them were not. They wanted their slaves. So these guys, and it was a make or break deal for them. So they said, look, if we're going to win against Great Britain, we got to be united. They're going to leave on this issue. So let's table this issue for now. Let's bring it back up later. And they did. John Quincy Adams fought his entire career to end slavery. I think he was the only guy who, after being president, was in Congress. And they put gag orders on him because he preached against slavery from the floor of Congress so often they would put a gag order on him to shut him up. I mean, so many of these people did not want slavery. They tabled the issue till later so that we could get something formed get our independence from Great Britain, and then take it on from them. But slavery is a great example of the fact that this is not perfect. Um, Is owning someone biblical the slavery, the type of slavery we had? No. Now, so often in the scriptures when it mentions slavery, so often it's a slavery of financial indebtedness. I owe Mark $10,000. He's let me borrow it for whatever. I now, my labor belongs to him until I pay that $10,000 off. That was a lot of, not with the same rights that we have today, they, they could mistreat their servants more than we can get away with today, but that was essentially the same thing you had back then most of the time. Now, there was slavery that was kidnapping type of slavery, the type of stuff we did here, right? Uh, they did in Africa, uh, areas of the Middle East is still doing it, 
by the way. Uh, there are UN nations that haven't even made it illegal. So there you go. Um, so slavery is wrong. If you look at Exodus 21.16, or if you just want to write it in your notes and listen, look at this. Look at what the penalty. Now, this is Old Testament, right? We might not kill somebody for this today, because it says in the verse before it, he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Okay, we, I'm not, we're, we're not advocating for that today. That's a first covenant deal. But l- listen to verse 16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him. Do you might think of a popular Old Testament character that this happened to, that we talked about a couple of Sunday nights ago? Joseph. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be what? Killed, put to death. God doesn't like this stuff. And even with the financial deal, like between me and Mark, God's okay with it if we're going to do it. He'd rather we not, but if we're going to do it, here's some rules governing it. And Paul even talks about that, how a master should treat their slave, how a slave should honor their master. Um, Philemon, that book's all about that. But a lot of times it was a type of slavery where you could buy yourself out. So slavery, obviously a mark on our, on our country's heritage. So I'm not portraying that the Constitution is the Bible. It's not. When and where changes are needed to form a more perfect union over time, we should use the Constitution to make those changes. Because our founders anticipated the need for this by prescribing how to make them in the document itself. So if you need to change this document, this document has inside it how to change it. Because we know you are going to have to change it in order to form a, what are the words? A more perfect union over time as this happens. Obviously, we did end up getting the slavery issue right uh, eventually. Take one of our founders, the first president of America, which was who? Well, there were actually presidents before him, but this is the first presidents of the United States of America. Who was it? George Washington. What did he think about Christianity? You know, some people say, well, I don't know if he was a real Christian or not. Okay, listen to his farewell address. He didn't want to serve anymore as president. Here's his presidential farewell address. Quote, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, Christian religion and morality are indispensable supports. You can't do without them, he says. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. He said, if you're not a Christian, you can't even call yourself a patriot. Wait, this is one of our founders? Yeah. These firmest props and duties of men and citizens. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. He says, look, and another thing, you can't have morality without this religion, this Christian religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. In other words, you just can't have it, because that's where the morals come from. During the American Revolution, the British military came to our cities, and one of the things they did is they burned church after church after church. Why the churches? Why would the British care about the churches? Because the pulpits that preach the Bible, principles from Scripture, are where the ideas came from that formed the vast majority of our founders, not all, but the majority of our founders' thoughts about government, and that gave us the principles behind the rights listed in the Declaration of Independence. In fact, John Adams, when giving a list of who was most responsible for independence of America, said, well, you've got Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper, You've got Reverend Jonathan Mayhew, um, George Whitfield, and other pastors that influenced through the pulpit. That's what he said, one of the main guys, right? So when the British came to New York City, New Jersey, all these colonies, they largely hit churches. They burned them to the ground. 
There are two books from the 1800s that explain and reference this, if you want to go geek out. One is The Chaplains and Clergy of the American Revolution. Chaplains and Clergy of the American Revolution, easy title. And number two is The Pulpit of the American Revolution, easy title, Pulpit of the American Revolution. So there's a guy who lived back then who was the Reverend John Wise, okay, important figure. He preached in America in the 1680s. He wrote two books in 1710 and 1717 talking about rights given by a creator, okay? Back then in the 1680s, he has already preached that all men are created equal. This is the pastor or Reverend John Wise. He'd already preached from the pulpit, from biblical principles, that all men are created equal. Does that phrase sound familiar? It should. That they're endowed with their creator by certain inalienable rights. This came from his sermons, that phrase. Does that phrase sound familiar? He's already preached that according to the Bible, when you look at taxes, taxation without representation is tyranny. It's not the way God wants to set it up. Not his preferred method, right? That when you look at forms of government in the Bible, that the consent of the governed is what God most prefers. Do those phrases all sound familiar? Well, they should, right? Those are some of the most famous lines in the Declaration of Independence. So in 1772, the founders took John Wise's sermons and published them in a book. So not only did they, you know, so maybe you could say, if you were a huge pessimist, you could say, okay, well, they they accidentally absorbed those ideas. They forgot where they came from, and then they put them in the Declaration of Independence because they thought, well, those sound good. No, they took this guy's sermons, they knew where it came from, and they published his sermons in a book uh, that was, you need to look this detail up because I can't remember this, but I'm pretty sure it was printed by, paid for by the government in the printing. I'm not positive about that. I think it was. John Hancock had Reverend Foster preach a sermon, so the government officials, he was a governor at the time, John Hancock, uh, do you recognize that name, by the way? Okay. He was governor of, I cannot remember the state, I think it's Massachusetts. Well, he had uh, the Reverend Foster come preach to the state government of Massachusetts so that the government officials of the state could think rightly about how to run a government. Oliver Wolcott, signer of the Declaration, has a sermon preached for the state government as governor of Connecticut. John Taylor Gilman, signer of the Constitution and governor of New Hampshire back then, has a sermon preached to his state government showing them all God has to say about good government. But yet when the new Speaker of the House, uh, Mike Johnson, stands up and mentions God and his Christian faith, these people blast him over the media and say, wait a second, wait a second, separation of church and state. Don't bring your religion into into the political sphere. You wouldn't have this nation if our founders hadn't done that. You wouldn't have this nation. So uh, let's look at the First Amendment. Let's take that for an illustration of what I'm talking about. Reverend Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg was a pastor at a church in New York City in 1777. When the British came, there were 19 churches in town. The British burned 10 of them to the ground. He stood outside his church watching as it is being destroyed, and he said, basically, I've got to do something. I've got to get involved. So here's what he did. He helped write the original constitution for the state. He gets elected to the Continental Congress. He's elected to the Federal Congress. He's elected Speaker of the House in Congress. He helps write the First Amendment, and he's one of the signers at the bottom. If you look at the original First Amendment, there's multiple guys at the bottom that signed it, that drafted it. His signature's right there, okay? And there are people who want us to believe that a pastor, so a lot of people invoke the First Amendment to say, eh, you can't bring this stuff into the government sphere, this religious stuff. There are people who want us to believe that a pastor over 
the writing of the First Amendment is going to write an amendment that says, as a pastor, I can't be involved? I mean, what's, this makes no sense. This is nonsense. The First Amendment is not written to secularize government. It's actually written to limit government from secularizing society. Why do I know that? Well, read the wording. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Who's it limiting? Me or you? No, who did it limit? The federal Congress. Now, other powers were entrusted in the states, and it said whatever's not in the Fed, it lays with the states, especially you know, the police power and things like that. But it's not limiting us. We think, the, we think that we're given rights of free speech and free assembly and free association, being in a church, attending church, free speech, all those things, because a document gives it to us. None of our founders thought that. That's nonsense. They thought, no, we're given to it, we're given those rights by birth from our creator, and we know that because of biblical principles that we walk out and that we find, and this document is not limiting people, it's limiting Congress's ability to infringe on those people's right to go to church, to have right of assembly, uh, right of petition, right of free speech, all those things. Petition is where you can petition your uh, representative. You have contact with them. That's, they're your representative. The only limitation in the First Amendment is what Congress can't do. It's not about what pastors can't do. It's not about what churches can't do. It's not about what religious individuals, all of you, can't do. It only limits Congress. Now, there's a video that I want to show here in just a second. It's from the Daily Wire. Ben Shapiro interviews a guy named David Barton on June 30th, 2019. You can look it up on YouTube if you want. Uh, This explains a little more about it, and so um, I wanted to play this for you guys. Let's talk about the religious perspective of the founders. So the the typical narrative goes in public education. I was in public school, and I went to public school for for college as well. The typical historians tend to say that the founders were basically deists, that they believed in the clockwork universe maker. He set the universe in motion, and then through natural law discoveries, we came up with all of these wonderful ideas. But the Bible is really sort of a secondary afterthought. uh, that These were all deists. They they may have been sort of a a root-level theist, belief system that they believed in, but, but when it came to the Bible, they didn't take it literally, they didn't take it seriously. What do you make of, of that characterization of the founders? Yeah, characterization is the right word, and it's based on the fact that we really don't know them or who they are. Um, we actually reprinted an old 1848 public school textbook that we used for generations. In public schools, we studied all 56 signers of the Declaration. We knew who they were, their names, their character, their sacrifices. We knew their faith, their family. We knew all about them. Today, we know a small handful. I was recently with an academic at at Notre Dame, and he he jumped me and said, you overstate the faith of the Founding Fathers. They were largely deists. I said, okay, here's the deal. You name a a deist, what you call, you name what you call a deist Founding Father, and for everyone you name, I'll name five overt ones that today would probably be considered evangelicals in religious terms. So you name one, I'll name five. Let's see who runs out first. Well, he got through three or four and kind of ran out. I'm still going over here on the other side. And, and the problem is we take the, the least and we make that into the rule. And the rule is that, for example, the 56 signers of the Declaration 29 of them graduated from schools that in their day were considered Bible schools or seminaries. Now, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that a deist is going to attend a Bible school or a seminary, a place that trained ministers, you know, and they were largely Christians. Um, 
So that's their faith. We see it in evidence in, in their writings, which is why we collect so much. You know, just an, an easy one is to take somebody like a John Hancock. This is an original proclamation from John Hancock, and this is for the state of Massachusetts. And by the way, he's calling them to a day of public fasting, humiliation, and prayer, which is fairly serious. That's kind of serious on your faith. But you find throughout that he is very open as a Christian. He, he ca- talks about Jesus Christ and Savior, etc. Twenty-two times he called the state of Massachusetts to prayer like this. As you find governor. that by the time you as get governor. to 1815, there had been 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer in America, largely by founding fathers. So if they're deists, why do they have you praying? And why are they calling you to prayer with what might be considered evangelical language? Um, there's, he would alternate oftentimes with thanksgiving and fasting. This is one of Hancock's thanksgiving proclamations. This is when we found out Benedict Arnold was trying to kill George Washington. And it's, it's actually an amazing story. And he says, wow, the, the fingerprints of God in this are such to, to know that this was a God thing. Because the way, the way it came about, they should never have discovered the treason. It should never have been discovered. It was too well laid plan. So For people bunch, who don't know that story, maybe you can tell the story. Yeah, the, the story is <laughs> really kind of interesting uh, because Benedict Arnold had an ego, and his ego didn't get matched in the American army because he thought he should have been promoted much faster. And he wasn't being recognized and wasn't being promoted. So he starts saying, well, the British will respect me. They'll honor me. I, I can get a promotion through them. And so he starts working with the British. He's in charge of West Point. And by the way, the biggest statue you find when you go to the battlefield is Saratoga, which is the first major victory in the American Revolution. M- massive statue of Benedict Arnold because he was the hero. He was an American general. He was courageous, but he just didn't think he got enough respect. And so because of that ego kind of thing, he turns to the British, and so he works with them. And because he's an American general, is so good. He has West Point. All of West Point is under his control. And so he makes this plan to give West Point to the British, and he's going to have them there at the time that George Washington arrives so they can kill Washington or capture Washington in, in everything right there. So what happens is a British officer, uh, Andre, John Andre, is going back and forth with Benedict Arnold, and so they make the plans, they lay it out. Uh, Andre actually takes the plans, folds them up, puts them in the bottom of his shoe to hide in case anybody stops and they won't find it. And he gets into what is considered to be a safe part of New York. It is run by the British. All the loyalists are there. He's out of the American part of New York. He's back in the British part of New York. And he runs up on three guys and starts talking to them. And these guys, they're British guys. I can tell them what's going on. He starts sharing more information than he should have. Turned out they weren't British guys. They were three American militiamen who had just escaped from a British prison. And so here's three Americans who shouldn't even be in this area. They were prisoners. They got free. And now as Arnold starts becoming a little too open with them, they start getting a little curious and they start thinking this doesn't smell right. Mm. And so they actually grab him and take him to an American post, which wasn't supposed to be in that area at all. So everything was improbable all the way through. Uh, They searched, didn't find anything. And they said, let's search again. And for some reason, checked the bottom of his shoe, found the papers. So it just, everything was, it was just too many coincidences. That what they saw. There's this is too providential, too, too much God here. And so that's why Hancock called for that, that time of Thanksgiving. And there's where the HP froze. That's all right. That was almost at the end anyway. 
All right. So you see, that's David Barton. He runs wall builders with his son, Tim Barton. They live and work out of Alito, Texas, which is down the road, down I-20. That's where they are. They have the largest private collection of founding documents in the world. I mean, nobody's even close. So people in the U.S. Federal Congress, legislators, and legislators around the state at the state level will call him on his cell phone and say, I'm serious, Ted Cruz, call David on his cell phone and he'll say, hey, David, there's a bill on the floor, it's about this, da-da-da-da-da, what does the Bible say about it? What did the founders think about it? Can you just give me a little synopsis, David? will say, wait a second, let me call you tomorrow, let me check my library, largest collection of founding documents in the world, let me get back to you. And so uh, that's how a lot of people, he ministers to a lot of these guys. I went with him and his son back in April to D.C. to the house where we got to hear um, from some representatives, from some senators as well who were Christians who were up there serving God. So, look, there are a lot of dark things up there on the federal level, but if you say the sky is falling, I'm going to call you Chicken Little. God has his people up there. They're making a huge impact. They're praying. They're, they're there. They came to talk to us to kind of let us know what's going on, kind of state of the union type thing from their perspective. They do that conference twice a year, and then twice a year they do a state legislators conference where they're training them, educating them on our real founding to give them the, the nuts and bolts of what they need to do their job. So shouldn't pastors, so we, we talk about the spiritual heritage we have, shouldn't pastors, there's this question, shouldn't pastors never talk about politics? Well, it depends. If it's clearly taught in the Bible, it's fair game. If you look at Romans 13, verse 4 and verse 6, where Paul's talking about government, he calls those in civil government ministers of God. The same word God often uses to talk about pastors in the church. When you look at Hebrews chapter 11, if you want to write that down, Romans 13, Hebrews 11, when it lists the heroes of the faith, many of the people listed were government leaders. Joseph, Moses, Gideon, David... Why would God hold them up as examples to follow if he didn't want us being salt and light or serving in government? Go look at the Old Testament. Did God's minister, Samuel, keep his mouth shut when he was around King Saul? Did he just not say anything when there was a problem? Those of you who are familiar with the stories, or did he speak up? Spoke up, exactly. He corrected him. He pointed out God's character. Did Nathan keep silent around King David? Did he never speak up when there was an issue? No. What happened with King David? Bathsheba. He corrected him about his immorality with Bathsheba. He served as an advisor to David. Same thing with Jehoshaphat. Ministers in the Old Testament spoke to and influenced the civil arena because God told them to. That's why our founders saw the wisdom of bringing preachers, like we talked about, like he talked about there in the video, that John Hancock is governor of the state of Massachusetts, both brought preachers in to talk to his government and talk to them about biblical issues. And also, if the Bible never spoke to those issues, what do they do in there? It does. And also issued those prayer proc- uh, proclamations. One of them was one for Thanksgiving of, of that story he was telling. So it was awesome stuff. That's why our founders saw the wisdom of bringing these preachers in to address state government, federal government, and inform them on what biblical principles were so that they could make wise decisions. Okay, well, that's Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, verse 21, if you want to write that down, Matthew 22, 21, he says, render to Caesar what's Caesar. Some of you have heard this. He's talking about taxes and coinage, but he says, here's the principle, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's. So we have spiritual duties and we have civil duties. Jesus calls out leaders 
Jesus also calls out Herod. He says he's a fox. Jesus does occasionally speak to this issue. Is it Jesus' main concern? No. Government policy is not Jesus' main concern. He has much more important concerns. I'm not trying to paint a false picture here, but it is one of his concerns, and he does occasionally speak to it. What about politics? Are are there any issues that are off-limits for the church to address? So, for example, let's take marriage. You know, today they say, well, you can't talk to a political issue from the pulpit. Okay, let's look at marriage. Is that a political issue or a biblical issue? Biblical. Okay, right. I was wondering about y'all for a second, but I knew you had the answer. You just didn't want to say it. So since it has now become a bit political issue, does that mean we can't talk about it? Started out as a political, started out as a biblical issue. It didn't start out as a political issue. It's been made one in more recent years. So since that's true, that's now been removed and taken off the table. And we can't talk about Ephesians 5. We can't talk about um, Mark 10, I think it is, where he talks about a man and a woman staying together. Now these passages, we have to skip them because they became political. What about abortion? Is that a political issue or a biblical issue? Biblical issue. I'm not talking about the rare exceptions where the mother's life is endangered. We can have that conversation else, you know, on the side. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, I don't want the kid, I'm going to end the kid's life. That's what I'm talking about. It's, it's a biblical issue. So these things have become political is, issues, but they were biblical issues first. So every time the government says, oh, that's our issue, we suddenly can't talk about it if the Bible talks about it. Now, again, if the Bible talks about it. If it doesn't, hey, like social con- uh Social compact. Social compact law means what limit, what speed limit sign should we put out on Big Spring Street? 30, 35, 40, 45? That's up to us. The Bible doesn't say anything about that, does it? That's social compact. That's up to us. So we're not talking about that stuff. We're talking about where the Bible's clear, where the Bible deals with it. Labor relations. This one might surprise you. In Matthew 20, Jesus deals with contracts between employers and employees being unbreakable. Inviolable is, the, I think, the legal term. Labor relations in the Bible. No-fault divorce law. Remember that was changed? Do you remember the decade? Anybody remember the decade that was changed? That was around to see it? No-fault divorce laws. You used to have to give a reason for a divorce. Now you can just say, we just, we just want a divorce. You're just kind of casual. But remember the decade that that changed? 60s. What? 70s, you were close. Close. 60s. In Matthew 19, Jesus teaches about no-fault divorce, that you can't divorce your wife for just any reason, because this is the argument the Jews are having that they bring to him, to settle their argument for him. The free market system, it's in the Bible. 1 Timothy 5.8, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Matthew 20, you find it in Matthew 25, you find it in Luke 19. Due process, does that, due process, that's a, that's a legal term, right, regarding the judicial system. It's in the Bible, John 8, verse 10, the right to confront accusers. This is where our guys got these ideas, by the way. John 8, 10, you have the right to confront your accuser. Proverbs 18, 17, you have the right to compel witnesses to testify on your behalf. This is where they got these ideas. They didn't just come up, they didn't just wake up one day and go, you know, I think we should have where we put the right to to see your accuser so that you can cross-examine and all those things. They didn't just make this stuff up. So the phrase separation of church and state, when our new speaker of the house, who is a pretty solid, he's not Jesus, okay? He might make mistakes in the future. I'm not holding him up as a perfect example, but he's a great, strong Christian. I've actually, we met him when we were up in D.C. 
Um, he, was one of, he wasn't speaker at the house at the time. It's kind of a miracle story how he got that anyway. But a uh, great stand-up guy from Louisiana. I told him, I said, if I would have been from Louisiana, I would have voted for you. But I'm not, so I couldn't. Um, separation of church and state. A lot of people cried foul on him when he talked about God in his opening address in front of the house. I don't know if y'all heard about that. And so they said, separation of church and state. You can't talk about God in, in Congress. Who did that phrase come from? Does anybody know? It's not in the Declaration, and it does not appear anywhere in the Constitution. Who, who said or wrote that phrase? Does anybody know? Thomas Jefferson. Brownie points right there. <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson wrote the phrase, um, I can't even find where I am, here we go, Thomas Jefferson wrote the phrase, he wrote it to the Danbury Baptist Association, these guys were worried about what this new government might tell them about their denomination, Baptists back then, especially in that area, were the extreme minority, and so we always just act like we're abused, right, but we're, it's not that bad. So they said, look, are they going to tell us we have to be Anglican or we have to do this or we can't meet or whatever? And Thomas Jefferson wrote them a letter and he said, no, don't worry about that. There is a wall of separation between church and state. He was never saying that the church cannot influence and church members and pastors can't serve in government. That went on all the time, even at the founding. He was saying the government can't, it's limiting the government, not the church. The government can't impose on your free exercise of religion. So many people who are completely unaware of the setting and the background of that phrase misuse it to make the case that Christianity has no place in the halls of government. Yet the guy who wrote that phrase as president of the United States brought Christian church services into the Capitol building, in the buildings where they met, as president of the United States. Now, do you think, unless he flip-flopped on the issue, which in this case he didn't, do you think that he would mean that by that phrase? That you, you can't have an influence of Christianity on the government? Absolutely not. This is nonsense. And so people that echo that phrase today, first of all, they usually don't even know where it came from, and second of all, they don't have the context at all. Because the very fact that they're using that phrase is the evidence against what they're saying. So a question. Was the Bible really the primary influence on our founders? I mean, look, you can look at Exodus 21, Exodus 22, Exodus 23. You can look at the Ten Commandments. Don't they have something to say about how we should govern our behavior, the Ten Commandments? Where do you think they got a lot of the stuff that they wired into our legal system from the Ten Commandments? You look at Exodus 21, 22, 23, the household is protected. You have teaching on the economy, the ecology, that's land management, people groups, boundaries and borders, things like that, the legitimacy of those things, private property rights, justice and equity, not true justice and equity, what God defines it as, not what some Goofy social movement says it is. I'm trying to watch my vocabulary with the... Boys, I'm going to say goofy. Not going to use the S word. Goofy. Uh, People in a tough spot because of their circumstance. People who are in debt. Widows, orphans, travelers, the poor, the value of human life, unborn babies, women. All these things in those chapters are spoken about and are protected. This is where they got these ideas. They didn't just make them up because they sounded good. So was the Bible really the primary influence on our founders? Well, a political science professor from the University of Houston named Donald Lutz looked at thousands of writings from the founders and found 3,154 quotes from our founders. Their writings, their correspondence back and forth. You know, we have uh, the wall builders have a lot of copies of John Adams writing Abigail, letters back and forth, things like that. Looked at all their writings. They found over 3,000 quotes. The study took 10 years. (laughs) <laughs> the top quoted person was a guy named Montesquieu. 
Just over 8% was from him. His book is 1750, The Spirit of the Laws. Second quoted person, William Blackstone, about 8%. Most lawyers used his commentaries on the laws of England like we use the Bible today. John Locke, some of you have heard, may not have heard of those first two names, you've heard his name, 3%. So he's actually not even the top individual quoted, 3%. Most cited source, not person, source by far, take a wild guess, the Bible. 34% of all quotes in the founders' writings and documents that they pulled from over 3,000 were from the Bible. We do not have a godless constitution. So I recommended videos. The guy that was on this one that you watched is Wall Builders. You can find it on YouTube. Is God in the Constitution? Is God in the Constitution? If you YouTube Wall Builders, is God in the Constitution? He'll walk you through all that. Okay, so now let's move to the next section where we are now as we begin to wrap up. There's a particular stream of influence very active in our culture in America that's been attempting to create its own utopia by getting rid of all social wrongs. So it's almost, and it's, if you think about it, it's really prideful that we could, let's say we believe in God, that we could look at God and say, God, you know, we don't need you. We're going to fix all our problems by ourselves, and then we're just going to usher you in. We don't need you to do that. Think how brash and prideful and cocky that sounds. Let's say you don't believe in God. They just say, okay, secular. We're just going to create this perfect utopia, no problems. There's a quote from Lutzer's book, Erwin Lutzer, We Will Not Be Silenced, page 21, says this, A powerful cultural stream has fed this river of political correctness, the curbing of free speech, the, trying to stop it, increased government control, growing racial conflict, and hostility towards Christianity. Leading these attacks against traditional American values is a form of Marxism that is widely taught in the universities and assumed by elitists as the theory that best explains the inequities of our society, what's wrong, and our best hope for curing them, how to fix it. Yes, incredible as it may seem, Karl Marx still rules from the grave. (laughs) Although I would change Lutzer, I respect Lutzer, but I would change his word rule to influences, maybe a little better. But what this way of thinking does is that it removes God. Marxism, by the way, communism requires atheism. It requires the removal of God. Well, then how do you have any of his morals, if that's where morality and law comes from? You remove God. It redefines sin as something else. Oh, that's just an inequity. That's just a disorder, you know, whatever. And then provides its own answers for sins that are against what the Bible says to do about that sin. It provides its different set of answers. And and we'll look at this over the next couple weeks. Some of their tactics are dividing people into groups, so that it can create, I talked about this, an oppressor group and an oppressed group, the actor and the person being acted on, in an attempt to get the population, that's all of you, to think that this inequality of outcome, not opportunity, God is for equality uh, of opportunity, not outcome. It depends on what you do with that opportunity, with how God honors it. God obviously plays a part too in that, of course, right? Inequality of outcome is the main problem, they say, and then provide the answer for this fake problem. The destruction of the family is one of their agendas. Leading men beyond their biblical role to become their own gods, this is part of their agenda. Leading, and, and they don't hide it. They don't really hide it, by the way. It's not like, okay, it's a secret. We never talk about any of this. Leading women beyond their biblical role to be dominant over men. Leading children beyond their biblical role to ignore their parents completely, think that they're 
there's the S word in my, it's in my notes, so I'm not going to say it, that think that they're the S word and don't have the right answers to life and to rebel against this authority God placed in their life for their protection. And possibly, worst of all, pressuring the churches to be quiet about it. But will we, will we be silenced by this pressure as the title of Erwin Lutzer's book states? No, we will not be silenced, and that's his whole point. In fact, let me read to you one more quote from his book. This is page 16. Erwin Lutzer, We Will Not Be Silenced, page 16. He says this, and then we're going to hit our application section, wrap up. Let me be clear. I completely agree with everything he says here. This is important. He says, let me be clear that I am opposed to a form of judgmental Christianity that holds to truth without compassion. Agreed. And righteousness without humility. Agreed. I am opposed to a form of Christianity that judges without listening. Right. Remember earlier I said you have to know the person. You're trying to win a soul, not an argument. I'm opposed to a form of Christianity that judges without listening, that sees the faults of others without seeing our own. As a pastor, or when Lutzer is, as a pastor, my heart breaks for those who hurt, those who are confused, and who don't know where to turn for help. Our churches should be sanctuaries for the downtrodden, the oppressed, <clears throat> the oppressed, and the lonely. We should be hospitals for the soul. And it's exactly right. So you're not winning an argument. That's not your goal in any of this. We're going to study culture's assault on Christianity, their tactics, what should the church's response be. We're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to win a soul. There's lives at stake and how they're lived and their eternal destiny. I mean, all those things. So how can churches be hospitals for the soul if we submit to what the culture says is right instead of submitting to what the creator of the soul itself says is right? Well, the clear, duh, answer is we can't. If you listen to, and you can just write this down if you don't want to go there, if you listen to Acts 20, verse 27, Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul says, For I have not shunned or uh, failed to or avoided it. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. All of it. Right? None of this is off the table. Can we be a hospital for the soul if we just say, okay, well, we can cover that 20% of the scripture, but the government's taken this 80% away from us, so we can't talk about that. Nonsense. Now, we don't need to be mean about it. Mean-spirited is not Christ-like, but Christ is bold. Remember what he said? Wise as a serpent, harmless as dove. Right? Matthew 5, 13 through 16, last passage, then we'll wrap up. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. In other words, your job is to preserve God's character in this culture. And the culture is attacking, right? Like the graphic. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's only good for throwing out in the streets, he says. He says also in verse 14, you are the light of the world. You're to broadcast God's image, God's light to dark places. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. That's not why you light a lamp, just to cover it up, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So verse 16, he says, let your light so shine. In other words, in this way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, how do we shine the light? We have to go to the source of light, God and his word, to shine light into a dark culture around us. So that's the ending application section in your notes. And then... Those of you who know me, I like to give homework so that your, your, your mind is engaged, your spirit and your soul are engaged in this topic throughout 
however long the series is, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever, in this case, four probably. Homework. Last section of the notes, then we're done. And the two boys said, amen. (sighs) As you think about these issues over the next couple of weeks, and possibly do your own research and look more into these things through the news media, articles, and other sources, here's what I want you to do. I want you to limit your intake of this information. Don't cut it off. Limit it, though. And I want you to maximize your intake of time in the Bible and time talking with God in prayer. Here's why. You need good news on a regular basis, not just bad news. Dave Ramsey, if I can throw this phrase out here, Dave Ramsey calls the popular news media fear P-O-R, finish the sentence if you know where I'm going with that. And, it, and in a sense it is. They, catch you, they get you addicted on the fear, and they feed you more fear and more fear. And if your amygdala is fired up, fear, 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 you're just going, okay, i gotta, I got to leave Fox News on 24-7. Not throwing Fox News under the bus, but 24-7 is, is unhealthy for you. Maximize your intake of time in time in the Bible and talking with God in prayer. You need good news. Here's why. You need good news on a regular basis not just bad news. If all you take into your mind is bad news, it will poison your soul. So that's my homework. I'll try to have maybe something for each week, but that's my homework for this one. Um, Any questions, and then I'll close this and wrap us up in prayer. And if you have any detailed or personal stuff, you can come up to me afterwards. Any, Any questions about any of this tonight? I know I threw a lot at you. I shared probably 5% of, of what's out there for our nation's, our nation's foundation. I mean, you, you have no idea. If you know, you know, but if you don't, oh, you have no idea. It's, it's so rich. Any, any questions? I'm glad you asked that. So we record these. We put them on Podbean, Kelview's Podbean page. If you just Google Podbean, P-O-D, bean, like a coffee bean, Podbean, Kelview, You'll find it. Or if you go to Kelview.com and go to our sermons tab, scroll down to the audio, and then it'll also preload there. But all the Wednesday night stuff going back to, I think, 2013 or 14 is on our Podbean site. I think it's Kelview.podbean.com, but I don't want to tell you wrong. So just Google Podbean, Kelview. So this should be up by next Wednesday. So there, there might be as much as a week lag on, on these. Sound good? So if you want to share this with anybody, if you want to listen to it again, if you're we're, we're both dorks, so we, we eat this stuff up, so there you go. Let me pray this out. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you that you led very imperfect men who did not build a perfect system. The only perfect system is when you reign and rule on the earth, period. But you led very imperfect men to build an imperfect system, but that was the best the world has ever seen other than when you ran Israel. It's the best we've ever seen. By far, hands down, because it's largely built on your word. And so as we consider, now that we've looked at our history, as we consider these next few weeks, culture's assault on Christianity and what our proper response should be, their tactics, our response, uh, we just pray for your wisdom and your courage and boldness, not in an attitude of ugliness or hatred ever, but always in an attitude of love and concern for the other person. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.